Something to note, all of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. The trees lining Boston's Faneuil Hall stood barren. Winter winds bit the nose of a mounted patriot, Paul Revere. Luckily, he was nearing a beacon of warmth, the glowing tavern in the distance. As he got closer, he made out two familiar engravings above the wooden door. To the left, an eye surrounded by a compass, and to the right, a copper reptilian beast weathered by time. They indicated the tavern's name, the Green Dragon. Revere dismounted and tied his steed to a hitching post. He knocked softly on the door, and a bearded man peered through a crack. Revere flashed a small pendant that hung around his neck. The door swung open. Inside, the man took the Patriot's coat and pointed him to a set of stairs. Revere grabbed a candlestick and descended into the dark basement. With each creaking step, the sounds of chanting got louder. Rally, Mohawks, bring out your axes, and tell King George we'll pay no taxes on his foreign tea. His threats are vain and vain to think, to force our girls and wives to drink his vile bohee. Then rally, boys, and hasten on to meet our chiefs at the Green Dragon. Revere arrived to cheers and applause, a proper welcome for the senior Grand Deacon of the Sons of Liberty. That night, he and the other members would orchestrate a historic mutiny. That night, the secretive group planned the Boston Tea Party. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Sons of Liberty, a revolutionary organization founded in the late 1700s in Boston. The political radicals included many of the United States' future founding fathers. This week, we'll discuss what we know about the Sons of Liberty and the events that inspired them to organize. We'll explore how they orchestrated some of history's most iconic moments, like the Boston Tea Party. Next week, we'll talk about other societal offshoots that followed in their footsteps, like the Order of the Red Men and the Sons of St. Tammany. We'll debate whether the Sons of Liberty secretly caused the Boston Massacre, and if the Boston Tea Party was simply a distraction while the Sons stole opium. In 1765, nine middle-class businessmen held a series of covert weekly meetings in Boston, Massachusetts, the tight-knit society known as the Loyal Nine discussed the political shifts since the end of the French and Indian War. Great Britain was on the brink of bankruptcy. It had fought five wars in the past 50 years. Now they turned to the 13 colonies for financial support. One specific measure had seemingly crossed the line, 
the Stamp Act of 1765. The Stamp Act called for a tax on almost all paper products, deeds to land purchased or sold, wills, newspapers, almanacs, even playing cards. More than anyone, it impacted merchants, shopkeepers, artisans, and lawyers, those whose businesses relied on paper to function, the kinds of men who created the Loyal Nine. The society consisted of hard-working men like John Avery, a local distiller, Thomas Crafts, a painter, and Henry Bass, a local merchant. They were frustrated by the extra taxes they had to pay and outraged at where the money went. Because the revenue from the Stamp Act didn't just support the British government, it funded more British troops in the American colonies. The Crown claimed that the soldiers were necessary to keep the peace between the Native Americans and the colonists. But many citizens felt they were there to keep the colonists oppressed. Tensions heightened in March 1765. British Parliament introduced another cost-cutting measure that came at the expense of the 13 colonies, the Quartering Act. It required many citizens to house and care for British soldiers on their own dime. Imagine a complete stranger forces their way into your home. Not only do you have to provide them shelter, but you also have to pay for the food they eat and any other goods they need, like clothes or medicine. The Loyal Nine already understood that the paper tax could run them into the ground. But on top of that, the Quartering Act forced them to spend more of their hard-earned money on British soldiers. The financial hardships were too severe, and the colonists weren't reaping any of the benefits. It was time to stand up to Parliament. The group gathered at locations like the Chase and Speakman Distillery, the offices of the Boston Gazette, even under the Liberty Tree, a massive elm that grew along the only road in or out of Boston. It symbolized colonial pride and the spirit of the city. At their various meeting places, the Loyal Nine discreetly debated the best ways to get the new reforms repealed. They were the first group of colonists to actively defy King George III and the British Parliament. But they didn't have any official sway. They needed supporters. There was strength in numbers. For help, they called on a man named Ebenezer McIntosh, a propagandist and leader of the violent South End gang. But they only wanted him for his networking skills and his ability to rally ordinary people. They didn't want violence. Many of these men had families and businesses to uphold. So they met McIntosh in secret to discuss terms and set clear boundaries about what he could or couldn't do for them. It's not clear what conclusion they reached, but we do know that the Nine began spreading propaganda. They printed anti-Stamp Act pamphlets, which they slipped under their fellow Bostonians' doors. They posted signs criticizing the British Parliament and pointed out the ways they mistreated the colonists. Then, on August 14, 1765, Mackintosh decided it was time to up the ante. He hanged two effigies from the Liberty Tree to rile up the already frustrated Bostonians. One effigy depicted Andrew Oliver, the Massachusetts public official responsible for implementing taxes. The other was a demonic version of Lord Bute, the former British prime minister and instigator of the Stamp Act. A sign under Butte's figure read, What greater joy did ever New England see than a stamp man hanging on a tree? 
That day, a mob of hundreds gathered around the Liberty Tree. Men, women, children. It was like all of Boston came out to express their rage. Some participated in a bit of street theater. They ran up to passing streetcars and pretended to put stamps on the goods. Around 5 p.m., the sheriff and his men arrived to calm the disobedient crowd and cut down the effigies. But authorities were so overwhelmed by the size of the mob that they couldn't get anywhere near the tree. Around sunset, 50 members of the crowd pulled down the dummies and placed them in a coffin. Then they paraded them through the streets of Boston. Meanwhile, the Loyal Nine watched nervously from the outskirts of the crowd. Things were getting heated, aggressive even. This wasn't part of the plan. But now that the demonstration had begun, there was nothing the Loyal Nine could do to stop it. As the mob grew larger, the violence became inevitable. As they marched through the streets, the colonists chanted, Liberty, property, and no stamps. At the docks, they found a large log and battered down a building erected by Andrew Oliver. In his book, Defiance of the Patriots, historian Benjamin Karp notes that the building was intended to be a new stamp distribution office. Next, the procession made its way to Andrew Oliver's home. The mob threw rocks through his windows and vandalized other houses on his street. Then, in Oliver's front yard, they removed his effigy from the coffin and set it ablaze. Oliver had fled just before their arrival, which made it easy for the crowd to storm his home. They tore up furniture, broke mirrors and china, even raided his liquor cabinet. Hours passed before they eventually moved on. The following day, August 15, 1765, Andrew Oliver resigned from his position. The Loyal Nine's efforts had proved successful. They'd recruited McIntosh to bring out a crowd, which he did, maybe too well. The Loyal Nine had never wanted things to turn violent. They'd simply wanted the colonists to peacefully demonstrate. But on August 26th, McIntosh led another raid, this time on the home of Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson. He did so without the approval or permission of the Loyal Nine. The society members felt they could no longer be tied to McIntosh in any way. After all, they had businesses, a reputation, and a cause to protect. They needed to change their tactics and to rebrand as well. A young Bostonian lawyer and soon-to-be statesman, John Adams, stepped in to help. He wasn't a member, but he had close connections with the Loyal Nine and knew these men were respectable. Adams claimed that when he met with them, he was always very civilly and respectfully treated by all present. Perhaps Adams influenced the Loyal Nine to evolve. After all, the Stamp Act and Quartering Act still needed to be repealed. So the Loyal Nine expanded their membership under a brand new title, the Sons of Liberty. It was time to bring their fight to the other 12 colonies. Coming up, the Sons of Liberty adopt practices from a secret society called the Freemasons, but apply their own spin. Now back to the story. In 1765, British Parliament imposed a Stamp Act that enforced colonists in North America to pay an unwanted tax on paper goods. A secret group called the Loyal Nine rallied the masses to put an end to the imposition once and for all. 
In March 1766, British Parliament finally gave in to the disgruntled colonists and repealed the Stamp Act. Bostonians rejoiced. They lit bonfires and fireworks. Church bells rang. Homes and ships were decorated with streamers and colonial flags. And a crowd gathered at the Liberty Tree to celebrate the victory. But even after the repeal, tensions persisted between the colonists and Parliament. The work of the Loyal Nine was far from complete. Now they wanted to expand their rights and freedoms. But if they wanted to keep fighting, they'd need more support. So they created a new secret society, the Sons of Liberty. Ironically, the new title came from Parliament. After a contentious meeting regarding the Stamp Act, British Chancellor Charles Townsend made some slanderous comments regarding the colonists. But Irish Parliament member and colonial sympathizer Isaac Barry stood in their defense. He told the other members of Parliament that their behavior had caused the blood of these Sons of Liberty to recoil within them. News of Barry's support traveled back to the American colonies. The secret society adopted the phrase Sons of Liberty with pride. But a new name wasn't enough to implement change. The group needed a strong and fearless leader to orchestrate future activities. That man was John Adams' cousin, Samuel Adams, a local beer maltster and aspiring politician. He was chosen because of his aggressive personality, but it also made him divisive. Like gangster Ebenezer McIntosh, Adams supported the spread of propaganda and had no problems with inciting mob violence. Hoping to learn from their past mistakes, the Sons appointed a cooler-headed second-in-command, someone who could counterbalance Adams' more contentious tendencies. Someone like John Hancock, a local merchant. He was Adams' right-hand man, but he believed in a different approach. He hoped to avoid violence and guide the Sons of Liberty toward diplomatic resolutions, ones that didn't involve riots. To further strengthen the Sons, Adams and Hancock set their sights on expanding their membership. They reached out to a local silversmith and dentist named Paul Revere. Revere was well-read and hugely popular with a large network of artisans, many of whom would support the Sons of Liberty if he called upon them. According to Revere's biographer, Esther Forbes, it helped that Revere was a member of another secret order, the Freemasons. According to the book, A True Republican, The Life of Paul Revere, Forbes wrote, Revere's Masonic experience taught him both to know when to defer to those of superior authority and achievement, and when and how to exercise leadership. Revere's standing in the community, his personality, and his Masonic experience would all make him a worthy member of the Patriot Circle. We aren't sure exactly how or when Paul Revere was recruited into the Sons of Liberty, and that's because the Society did an impeccable job of covering their tracks. Many of their members went on to hold government positions over the next several decades, meaning they could have protected their secrets retroactively. While the Sons have managed to keep any rituals or initiation ceremonies secret, we have pieced together a few clues. For example, we know that three eventual leaders of the Sons of Liberty, Adams, Hancock, and Revere, were former Freemasons. And because the Sons shared members and meeting places with the Freemasons, it's possible they practiced some of their traditions and rituals as well. 
For example, both the Freemasons and the Sons of Liberty were thought to have their own secret language to identify members and expose imposters. They used handshakes and signs to protect themselves from loyalist British spies. In addition, the Sons of Liberty probably borrowed a commandment from the Freemasons, Brotherhood over the law, which meant members willfully committed crimes to protect their fellow initiates. For example, the Sons of Liberty may have been encouraged to lie under oath if a colleague was ever charged in court. And since many of these men went on to draft the Declaration of Independence and contribute to the U.S. Constitution, it's possible that some federal laws were intended to serve the men of each society. Especially since both organizations believed in self-government, free enterprise, and personal freedoms for every man. At least on paper, we should note that several Freemasons and Sons of Liberty supported slavery and other racist practices, and they generally didn't champion rights or freedoms for women. True, but they were both anti-royalists and believed citizens shouldn't be oppressed by the government nor their religion. These values were later reflected in the Bill of Rights, which enshrined free speech, freedom to practice religion, freedom to congregate, and more. Today, many Americans cherish these freedoms, but the beliefs were all extremely radical for the time, and they didn't only challenge the traditional mindset, they threatened British Parliament. English authorities were sure to strike back against the rebellious colonists. Which is why the Sons of Liberty had to operate in secret. Every time they gathered, members swore upon the Bible. They wouldn't repeat anything they heard in the meeting. If Parliament were to receive word of their activities before they were fully prepared, they'd be crushed. This may also explain why there were no records of any initiation ceremony for new members. They didn't need to create a bond through ritual because they were already united against their common enemy, Great Britain. After all, the Sons of Liberty were more than a fraternity. They were the beginning of a revolution. Their most private meetings were held at the Green Dragon Tavern on Union Street. The tavern had hosted the Freemasons since it had opened in 1712. But in 1764, the St. Andrew's Lodge of Freemasons bought the Green Dragon Tavern to use as headquarters for both organizations. Most days, the location operated like a traditional pub, but occasionally, the tavern closed for private meetings. The Freemasons gathered upstairs while the sons met in the basement. In the dark shadows of the cold stone cellar, they traded tips on the movement of British soldiers around Boston. They speculated on what Parliament might know and schemed to enact change in the colonies. According to a manuscript by member Colonel John Russell, the Sons of Liberty consisted of an association of spirited men who were determined to resist the oppressive edicts of the British ministry and to sustain and support each other in their efforts to rescue the town and country from the thraldom of tyrannic power. Russell's manuscript, which became public in 1850, also offered clues about the elusive society. He claimed that each man wore a medal around his neck, possibly made by Paul Revere himself. One side of the pendant showed a stalwart arm grasping in its hand a pole surmounted with a cap of liberty. Surrounding the image were the words, Sons of Liberty. The opposite side of the pendant depicted the Liberty Tree, one of the famous locations where the Sons were known to gather and host public rallies. 
At the tree, society members gathered hesitant colonists and educated them about British oppression. It's possible that the Sun's orator, Patrick Henry, led these gatherings and delivered soliloquies on the harmful effects of inequitable taxes. The Suns also hosted public rallies inside Boston's Faneuil Hall. But over time, the crowd outgrew the space. They had to relocate to the Old South Meeting House, the largest building in Boston at the time. It fit 6,000 heated Bostonians. The Sons of Liberty were influential outside of Massachusetts as well. In their first year of existence, other chapters sprang up in every one of the 13 colonies. It's safe to assume that each had similar goals, to rally the people against taxes and drum up discontent against the British government. As their society became more popular, many self-proclaimed Sons of Liberty groups performed unauthorized acts of violence in their name. The imposters included a group of South Carolina sailors who extorted passers-by for money. Even women wanted to get involved. Since the Sons of Liberty didn't initiate women, female freedom fighters formed their own society called the Daughters of Liberty. Unlike the Sons, the Daughters of Liberty weren't involved in civil gatherings and protests. Instead, they made goods like yarn and textiles. They sold them to the colonists to undercut British trade. In his book, The American Revolution, A Concise History, author Robert Allison said that in 1768, 92 Daughters of Liberty brought their wheels to the meeting house in Newport, spending the day spinning together until they produced 170 skeins of yarn. Making and wearing homespun cloth became political acts of resistance. And when the Sons asked Americans to boycott British goods, the Daughters of Liberty offered buyers an alternative. Since women traditionally shopped for their households and operated storefronts, they led the charge in the financial battle against the Crown. If women rejected British products, they could strike a massive blow. Like the Sons of Liberty, the Daughters had no official roster, rituals, or initiation practices that we know of. And perhaps the only requirement to join was the promise to boycott British imports. With every passing day, the Sons and Daughters of Liberty accepted more members. Their influence broadened, and as they expanded, the society's goals became more ambitious. Originally, the Sons of Liberty had formed to oppose the Stamp Act, but they'd evolved to completely reject all British authority. And when they dumped 342 chests of tea into the Boston Harbor, it became apparent they were a force to be reckoned with. Coming up, the Sons of Liberty begin an iconic rebellion. Now, back to the story. The Sons of Liberty were different from other fraternal organizations. Secret handshakes and hazing rituals would only have distracted from their cause. The Sons weren't trying to protect ancient, powerful secrets. They were trying to escape oppression. And exclusivity was simply not an option. They seemingly achieved victory in 1766 with the repeal of the Stamp Act. But one step forward created two steps back. The same day they nullified that act, Parliament passed a new law, the Declaratory Act. This new measure was even more oppressive than the last. The Declaratory Act stated that British Parliament could assert its authority over the colonists whenever it chose. 
Britain already held the power to do what they wanted, but now it was an official law, a petty reminder that they had the upper hand. The Sons of Liberty saw the Declaratory Act as a direct threat. So they adopted the 1761 motto of their member, political activist James Otis, no taxation without representation. If Great Britain wasn't going to give the colonies elected representatives, then the Americans weren't going to pay taxes on their goods. The silent war between the Sons of Liberty and Great Britain began. In April 1766, colonists regularly protested against British Parliament. The royal politicians living in the colonies were forced into hiding. English Governor Thomas Hutchinson ordered Boston's weapon stores to shut down. He feared what would happen if the rebels were armed. In spite of his efforts, revolutionary fervor swept the colonies. Even the sheriffs, militia, and other Bostonian peacekeepers sided with the Sons. If they weren't already members themselves, the Sons had turned the entire city against the British. The colonists had become virtually self-reliant. They made and sold their own goods, so they wouldn't have to purchase them from the British. They only bought items they couldn't make themselves, like porcelain china, glass, lead, paint, papyrus, and tea. But in 1767, Parliament imposed a new set of laws called the Townsend Act. This increased taxes on exactly those items. The Sons of Liberty organized a nationwide boycott. Every chapter did their part to enforce it, meaning anyone who sold British goods in their store risked being vandalized, robbed, or worse. Some chapters smashed windows and smeared excrement on the walls of anyone violating the boycott. If the shop owners persisted, the sons kidnapped the perpetrator and publicly tarred and feathered them. For sympathetic sellers, the sons smuggled whatever goods they didn't want to pay a tax on. They bought from countries like Spain, France, and the Netherlands. And the British were not amused. Luckily for them, the Townsend Act granted British troops permission to search the homes of the Sun's most respected leaders. Like John Hancock, who was now one of the wealthiest shipping merchants in the country, he had access to foreign goods like glass, lead, paper, molasses, wine, and French tea, all of which the British found during one of their unwarranted searches. On November 3, 1768, British soldiers arrested John Hancock. His fine was set at 9,000 pounds sterling, over $1.5 million today. When Hancock went on trial, Sons member John Adams represented him. It's possible Hancock chose Adams because they shared a fraternal bond and the promise to lie for each other in a court of law. Whether any other sons were called to the witness stand isn't entirely clear, but it's likely they would have followed the same practices to protect their fellow Son of Liberty. After four months in court, the charges against Hancock were dropped due to lack of evidence. Hancock was required to hand over his smuggled goods, but his release was still a victory for the Sons of Liberty. Over the next year, tensions between the British and the colonists intensified. It wasn't just about taxation anymore. British soldiers barged into homes and arrested anyone they saw as a threat. And in March 1770, that tension erupted into absolute chaos in downtown Boston. 
A group of over a hundred civilians taunted the royal main guard outside the custom house. Without warning, the soldiers opened fire on them. When the dust settled, five American colonists lay dead in the blood-stained snow. The tragic event became known as the Boston Massacre. And the loss of life became an incredible PR opportunity for the rebels. Now the Sons of Liberty had proof that the British troops weren't there to protect the colonists. Paul Revere spread propaganda through newspapers in all 13 colonies. He paired the story with illustrations of the massacre, portraying the soldiers as barbaric monsters who slaughtered the patriots. And it worked. Soon, newspapers like the South Carolina Gazette referred to the Sons as the only guardians and protectors of the rights and liberties of America. Great Britain pulled many of their troops back to the motherland and repealed measures like the Townsend Act the following month, April 1770. The Sons of Liberty had organized a successful grassroots movement. Despite a few lost lives, they'd gotten what they wanted out of the fight, but they weren't satisfied to stop there. After all, there was still an extremely high tax on tea. On a cold and quiet night in December 1773, the sons gathered at the Boston Gazette offices under the shadows of the Liberty Tree, in one-bedroom apartments, and in blacksmith shops. Their hearts pounded in anticipation. Paul Revere rode up to the Green Dragon Tavern. He flashed his Sons of Liberty pendant and descended into the cold stone basement. The sons welcomed Revere, handing him a pint of beer. He and the other sons disrobed, only to redress in traditional Native American garments before painting their faces with soot. There had to be a few ground rules. No stealing, no violence, and no unnecessary vandalization. They swore an oath to keep their identities a secret. Around 7 p.m., under a new moon, the members left the Green Dragon on foot. They made their way east to the Boston Harbor. In the dim of the night, dozens of men forced their way onto the docks. According to Benjamin Carp's book, Defiance of the Patriots, two Sons of Liberty came upon a British soldier. They flashed their swords before saying, The path is wide enough for us all. We have nothing to do with you and intend you no harm. If you will keep your own way peaceably, we shall keep ours. The request worked. Soon, merchants, laborers, craftsmen, and politicians assembled at the harbor. The men got to work, each with a specific role to play. Some broke open the hatchways. Others hoisted the chests of tea to the upper deck. Some watched for spies. Those in charge cracked open the chests to expose the contents before tossing the tea overboard. Reverend Samuel Cooper, who witnessed the event, claimed that it was a remarkable instance of order and justice. No noise was heard except the occasional clink of the hatchet opening the boxes. The sun silently hauled 342 chests of tea, each weighing more than 250 pounds, into the Boston Harbor. Some historians claim that passers-by also joined in, making the headcount anywhere from 100 to 150 participants. Their actions proved that the American colonists were a force to be reckoned with. It cost Parliament the equivalent of more than $1.7 million in modern U.S. currency. 
The Boston Tea Party was the Sun's largest organized protest and watered the seeds of the rebellion. It also inspired other chapters to act out. Like the Sun's Maryland, who set a tea trade ship known as the Peggy Stewart on fire in October 1774. And the Daughters of Liberty, who held their own coffee party in the mid-1770s. Over time, these acts of defiance became too much for the motherland. A revolution was on the horizon, and the crown needed to act quickly to prevent an all-out revolt. In 1775, a handful of Sons of Liberty members gathered in Virginia to negotiate the colony's terms with the British king. But it quickly became apparent that the Sons had no intention of compromising. Instead, member Patrick Henry exclaimed, Give me liberty or give me death. And on April 19th of that year, the Revolutionary War began. If not for the Sons of Liberty and their grassroots movement, the United States might still be under British rule today. The Sons were an anarchist success story. Political activists turned heroes. Or at least, that's the way history paints them. But outside of textbooks and classrooms, whispers and clues suggest that the Sons of Liberty had a darker agenda. Next week, we'll explore the rumors surrounding this secret society, tales of the drug trade, corruption, and murder. Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two on the Sons of Liberty's darker secrets. We'll explore whether the Boston Tea Party was a distraction to steal illegal opium, and if the Boston Massacre was planned by the Sons of Liberty themselves. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Secret Societies, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.